You'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we continue in our trek through the gospel of Luke. And this morning we will be looking at verses 15 through 20. The title of my sermon is We're Not Worthy. The key words for our worshipers in training are baptism, Herod, and Holy Spirit. Now, all of us can probably recall various things in our lives that have caused us to wonder, what's it going to be like? No matter what it is, all of us have certain perceptions about how certain things are going to be. Sometimes it's a wild speculation that has nothing to do with reality. Sometimes it's based on things that we've heard other people say, other, other things that have been talked about, maybe something we're read. Uh, but we're curious and we're eager with expectation and longing for certain things in life, and we attempt to figure out what the unknown is going to be like. Some of you are masters at this, and, and most of your thought life is, is wrapped around what's going to happen instead of what is happening. Maybe it's before we go to a new school or starting college or a new job or, or getting married or having your first child or maybe even thinking, what will heaven be like when we get there? Now, all of these things to very uh, degrees bring about a sense of wonder, bring about a sense of expectation, and we all have perceptions about certain things and what they're like before they actually happen. There's no doubt in my mind that this is exactly what was the case for uh, the Jewish people in the first century who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. What would he be like? How was he going to arrive? What would he do? How would, we, how would he be able to conquer a great ruler and power of that day? What will his kingdom be like? Who will be his ambassadors and his administrators and his servants? So many questions, and mainly all based upon speculation. So it's really no wonder at all to see where we are in the text today that when it comes to John the Baptist, he came preaching to the Jews in a very direct and very distinct manner. He had a very clear word from the Lord after 400 years of prophetic silence. And many of the people began to wonder, who is this man? What is he saying? Where has he come from? Remember verses 1 through 14, we looked at John the Baptist calling the Jewish people to repentance and baptism. And many of those gathered around him, uh, we learn in Matthew's gospel account, were Pharisees and Sadducees. And John had some very difficult words for them, didn't he? Recall he was very direct, he was very clear, he was very pointed in his words. He told them that their Jewishness was no guarantee of their salvation. And likewise, the fact that they were the ethnic seed of Abraham had no bearing on their ultimate salvation. And likewise, John pointed out that one's being a Gentile was no guarantee of them not being a child of God. So John did throughout his ministry what we see all the way throughout the New Testament from Jesus and on to the apostles. He pointed out God's real concern. 
Not outward appearances, not external things, not uh, where we were born or who we were born to, but rather the heart, the heart of each individual. That is God's great concern. And so what are we relying on for our salvation? What are we clinging to in our hopes that we will be in heaven? What are we entrusting our lives to day by day by day as we walk through this life and we encounter trials of various kinds? John's call to the Jews was to repent of their faithless hearts, to cling to the Messiah. And this morning I commend to you this very same Messiah, Jesus Christ. Do you rest in Him? Do you cling to Him? Is He your greatest desire? Is He your greatest treasure in this life? And I hope that we will all see this morning that we are unworthy of this Messiah. We're unworthy sinners. We're unworthy of the grace of God. We're unworthy of the mercy of God. We are unworthy of Jesus. And yet... God the Father, through Jesus himself, has made us to be worthy recipients of his mercy and his grace by his great love and for his glory. Now, of course, the Jewish people in John's day had no idea really who the Messiah would be and how he would come. Examination of the scriptures and and various other historical resources will tell us of the time that they were speculating all of these things. The Israelites were expecting a political ruler, a nation-state king who would overthrow the government, all the authorities, who would establish his own kingdom on the earth, and he would reign forever. And so as the people were under a fairly difficult governmental authority, they were very excited for the coming of the Messiah. After all, they'd been promised that he was going to come for nearly 4,000 years at this point. Surely he would come soon, and indeed he does. So let's pick up where we left off in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Literally, the people were longing for, or one translation says they were on tiptoe in expectation. They were eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah. All that they had heard and known and waited for, they were now anxious to know how all of that was going to come together. So Luke writes, the people were wondering that maybe John himself was the Christ. Maybe John was the Messiah, the anointed, promised one. And hearing all that he proclaimed and the strange practice of calling Abraham's children to baptism, maybe this is the Messiah because he is saying some very strange things. Perhaps it's him. And no doubt, his, his sudden appearance from the wilderness, his self-denial, his very difficult words, all of this created a buzz about the land. We read in the Gospel of John that the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to question him. In John chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, we read this concerning John's encounter with those who were sent. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 
He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now it's significant to point out that all of the gospel writers that reference John's preaching highlight the fact that John is adamant about not being the Messiah, but only a messenger, the one who is called to make the way straight, as we looked at two weeks ago to raise up the valleys and to lower down the mountains, that the way is paved for the Messiah to come. He is the messenger announcing the, king, the coming of the king to establish his kingdom. Let's look at verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what the Holy Spirit does through John in his preaching is the same thing we always see the Holy Spirit doing, namely pointing to Christ. We see it in the words of Jesus recorded in John 16, 13 and 14. Jesus said, He, the helper I'm sending, He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. In other words, the Holy Spirit is there to glorify Christ, to point us to Jesus and to not point us to Himself. Now, there's three ways here that John directs his hearers to Christ instead of to himself. And he does it by way of comparing and contrasting himself with Jesus. The first is when he says, I baptize you with water. In other words, all that I can do is external. I can dunk you in the water here at the Jordan River, but that's all I've got. I can't do anything else to you. But... He who is mightier than I. He is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with fire. In other words, His work is supernatural. His work is divine. Mine is external. Mine is water. His is internal. His is the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that closer in a minute, what he means by that. But the first way John directs us to Christ is to point out His divine nature. He does a supernatural work while we can only do what we are able to do externally with the elements that are present to display physically, outwardly, what God has done internally. Secondly, John says, I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. In other words, he is mightier than I. In general, teachers in Palestine were not paid They didn't receive a wage, but they had disciples who would show their appreciation for them by doing various tasks uh, for their teachers to make their lives a little bit easier and more manageable. 
It gave the disciples more time to be with their teachers, to learn for them. There was even a saying among the rabbis. They would say, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. In other words, that's just too menial of a task. That's truly the work of a slave. And even then, it's a detestable job. And so what does John say as he compares himself to the Messiah? I am not even worthy of doing the most menial, lowly of tasks to untie his sandals. The contrast is clear here, isn't it? Jesus is great. He is mighty. He is high and lifted up. John is simply a man who doesn't even possess the worthiness to serve him in the most lowly and basic of tasks. It's a genuine humility from John the Baptist. And he really understands who he's dealing with here. And thirdly, John really relates to the larger context of his ministry as we look at this point and hopefully the ministry of any gospel preacher. Namely, that he is deflecting attention away from himself in order to point to the one to whom he is clearing the way for. John really exemplifies what the very best kind of preaching is. It's preaching about God. It's preaching that honors God. And it's preaching that is centered on Jesus. And it is a help to mankind about Jesus. And woe to me and woe to any other preacher of the gospel. If you ever walk out of here on the Lord's Day and remember a story I tell you or a comment I make about myself and don't remember anything I've said about Christ. At that point, it's pretty clear who the main subject is. Woe to any man who stands before God's people to tell them about his own greatness and his own achievements and his own glory, but leaves them starving for the word of God, starving for Jesus which is sadly much of what passes for preaching today. But we don't see that in John. Rather, he's motivated in his his calling from God and his desire for the good of the people. So he preaches the law of repentance. He preaches the gospel of forgiveness. And his central unwavering theme is Jesus Christ. And his preaching laid bare the secrets of the human hearts around him and the moral dilemmas of the daily lives of all of these individuals. So John's preaching is faithful gospel preaching. It is thoroughly Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. So what does John mean at the end of verse 16 when he says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? But John's statement is dealing with the benefits obtained by the believers in Christ as a result of the regenerating work of God. So, when Jesus calls us up from the grave, dead in our transgressions and sins, he calls us to walk in the newness of life that he provides. We are then baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John Calvin explains it this way. It is Christ who bestows the spirit of regeneration and like fire, the spirit purifies us 
by removing our pollution. So a believer in Christ receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are several implications uh, in this. What happens when we're baptized in that moment, according to the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit? First, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are regenerated. We are born again. In the words of John chapter 3, we are born of the Spirit. We are brought out of darkness into the light. And this is a divine work of God. So we're regenerated. Then we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us this promise in John 14. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Likewise, Paul writes in Romans eight sixteen and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so we are sealed. In other words, our salvation is eternal. The Holy Spirit keeps us. So the Holy Spirit of God seals us and is our guarantee of the inheritance the eternal riches of God because we are His children. And even further still, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit prays for us as our helper. Romans eight twenty six and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Believer, the Holy Spirit has been praying for you since the very moment you were born again in Jesus Christ. When you are at the lowest part of your life, rest assured that the Holy Spirit is praying for you in perfect accordance with the will of the Father. That is reassuring. And for the believer, the Holy Spirit also within us illumines the truth of the Word of God. We pray for that each week. We are enlightened. We are made to see and understand the truth of the Scriptures. As if we look to the Bible and it was dark and maybe a veil placed over it, the Holy Spirit holds the lantern closely that we can see it and understand it and it makes sense to us. I love the language in the hymn by Charles Wesley. The dungeon flamed with light. It's darkness. It's a dungeon. Light enters, we see we understand, or amazing grace, I once was blind, but now I see. 
That's a work of the Holy Spirit. So we move beyond the intellectual understanding of the Word of God to seeing it with clarity and believing it with a regenerated heart. We believe it as the truth of God, and it makes sense, and we love it, and we delight in it. And lastly, the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives gives us the ability to recognize and repent of our sins, to put to death our sins, and to believe even more resolutely in the gospel of Christ. It is this indissoluble relationship to God by the Holy Spirit's indwelling power that we are kept in Christ and we are refined and we are made more and more and more into the likeness of our Savior. And so the Holy Spirit is absolutely 100% necessary if we are going to be sanctified. If we are going to grow in holiness, we must be baptized by the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, he is at work refining our souls, removing impurities, making us more and more and more into people who cherish and honor Christ. It was those who used to do the work of refining metal. They would heat it up until it became a liquid. Generally speaking, it was, uh, it was gold. And as it was heated, the impurities of that uh, natural metal would, would rise to the top. And they would remove all of the dross. The refiners knew the metal was purified when, when the liquid mirrored back their own reflection. And so it is with the Spirit's work in our lives. He melts our hearts. He skims away the dross, the impurities. He allows us to cool into Christ's likeness. And then he turns up the heat again. It's the refining fire of the Holy Spirit. It is the refining work of God to purify us and to make us more holy, to make us more into the likeness of Jesus. And we sing about this as well. When through fiery trials my pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume gold to refine. That's the promise of God. He's refining the gold of the gospel within us. So spirit baptism and fire baptism are shades of the same inner baptism that occurs in all believers. Spirit baptism regenerates, indwells, seals, guarantees, prays on our behalf and brings illumination to the truth of God's word. Fire baptism brings us again and again to the place of repentance and deeper faith and trust and love for our Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit refines us and molds us and shapes us. This is why every true believer in Christ can look back on who they were as Christians five years ago and see spiritual growth. And 10 years ago and see significant spiritual growth, hopefully. Because God does not save us and leave us. He gives us the Holy Spirit and it truly is a work of God. It is divine and it is a sure sign of the kindness of God, the mercy of God. And it should bring us to our knees and stop our mouths as we consider how unworthy we are of such a great promise. 
Such a great gift. Such a great inheritance. Who am I? Who are you that we should receive so much? We're not worthy, and yet we receive. All praise to God. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As Jesus comes on the scene, he metaphorically does so with a winnowing fork. In other words, he comes with righteous judgment. He comes with justice. And John doesn't use a very tame description here, does he? If you've ever been anywhere that's largely an agrarian society, you may have seen the work involved in separating the chaff from the grain, from whatever the crop is. John uses wheat for his illustration. The wheat would be gathered, it is thrown onto the floor. It's called the threshing floor. It would be threshed out by an ox. In other words, the ox would be harnessed to a post and would walk in circles on top of the grain and with each step, loosening the wheat from the chaff. Once the wheat was tread out by the ox, the person uh, who was doing the harvest, they had the winnowing fork. They would scoop up the wheat, they would toss it in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff and all of the wheat would fall to the ground. And this process continues until the threshing floor is empty so it can be started all over again with the next harvest. So John makes this very clear assertion that Jesus will clear the threshing floor. In other words, he will separate the wheat, the useful good crop. He will separate his people from the chaff, from those who are not his own. Another illustration Jesus uses when he separates the sheep from the goats. What will he do? The wheat will go into the barn. The wheat will be preserved and held by him. And the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Our Lord Jesus Christ exercises perfect, unerring judgment. And while John could only know the outward works and words of the people around him, Jesus would know their hearts. He would discern their motives and their intentions. And in his divinity, Jesus knows those who are his children and those who are not. And he knows who has the baptism of the Spirit and the fire and who does not. And this is a good reminder to all of us. That we, like John, are unable to know the minds and the hearts of those we encounter and seek to share the gospel with. While there will be evidences of gospel transformation in someone's life and the outward actions of a believer, it's not always the clearest of matters. Slow sanctification, perhaps, poor teaching, a lack of understanding, all of these things can lead a thoughtful Christian to assume that another person may in fact not be regenerate at all when they might be. It may be the case that they're not. Time will show that. The scriptures give us evidences of what that looks like. 
And that's exactly what Jesus addresses when we deal with discipline within the church. But remember, our commission from Christ is not to make final judgments on whether someone is or is not a believer in Christ. We are called to go into all the world and make disciples, not Christians. God makes Christians, we make disciples. By what means? By the preaching of the gospel. God will do the work. Whom will he save? Whomever he wills. We preach, he saves. And there's something implied in John's metaphor here with regards to believers and unbelievers. They will, until the final day of judgment, be together. In other words, there will be those in the end who we grew up with, who we had Sunday school classes with, who we went to vacation Bible school with, who we sat next to on the same row every Lord's Day. And when the weed is separated from the chaff, they will not be gathered into the barn, but burned up in the unquenchable fire. Many, many, many people have believed a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. And as a result, they have worshipped a God of their own making, not the God of the Bible. They've been told they're believers in Christ. They've been told some outward action makes them to be regenerated. And as a result, they will be eternally condemned, even though they were certain that they had it all figured out. It's terribly frightening. It's a great reason for all of us to take inventory of our hearts, to lay the word of God on our hearts, on our lives. Now, don't take that to mean that we cannot know whether or not we are going to heaven, whether or not we are regenerate. The Bible makes abundantly clear in many places, particularly in the New Testament, that we have God's word so that we might know whether or not we are in the faith. By God's grace, he has given us many different tests in the scriptures to run our lives through, to see how it all falls out. And in the end, we can determine if we are living upon God in union and communion with Him because of the finished work and the imputed righteousness of Christ on our behalf, or if we're living upon ourselves and our own righteousness and our own good works. Take inventory of your heart. Are you trusting in anything that you are? Are you trusting in anything that you know or anything that you have done to receive God's favor, to receive eternal life? If so, I want to plead with you instead to look to Jesus, to repent of your self-sufficiency and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope and stay. He is your only means of salvation. There is no other way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we dare not harden our hearts to the terrible doom of the chaff. Those headed for judgment in this next life. With awe, we must magnify Christ as the righteous judge because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Let us pray for those we know who are far from God. Let us not be hardened to them. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now notice that Luke regards John's message as good news. That's the meaning of the word gospel. Now remember, John did not yet know what God was going to do exactly to purchase forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ. But he did know something of the work of Christ the Messiah. But why does Luke call what John has said good news? He just finished quoting him as saying that Jesus was going to judge and many will be found to be condemned to eternal torment. Why is that good news? Well, if we really understand the condition of the human heart, we recognize that the only truly just thing for a holy, perfect, and righteous judge to do is to punish sin and to condemn sinners. That's justice. If someone is found guilty of rape and murder and a judge lets him go free, we don't call that justice. But you and I are guilty of far greater than rape and murder. Therefore, it's not just for God to simply let us go free. The wrath of God is upon us. That's the message of John the Baptist. It is good news when someone wakes you up and says, Quick, the house is on fire, but there's still time. I will show you the way to get out. Likewise, the gospel is not the gospel if it does not include within it the warning that God's wrath is coming. If I don't tell you you're condemned already for your sin and call you to repentance and faith in Christ as a result, I've not preached the gospel. And so we've watered it down to simply say, you need to get saved. Saved? From what? That's not helpful. Try this. You have committed the highest crime in all the universe by rebelling against our Creator. And as a result, He will justly and rightly pour His wrath on you for eternity. But you do not have to endure the wrath of God. Christ has endured the wrath of the Father on behalf of His people. Every sin ever committed will be punished. The question is, who will be punished for it? Either you yourself will pay your eternal fine or you will trust in the sufficient, complete work of Christ who endured the wrath of God on our behalf instead. Can we all talk about that? Can't we all articulate that? That's the gospel. That's what we are to proclaim. And it's a much more helpful statement than you need to get saved. And that's good news. What John is preaching gives us objective evidence in our lives so that we can ask ourselves, have I genuinely repented? Am I just playing games before the Lord? Do I just kind of give him lip service or do I really long to be like Christ? It's good news because it enables us to see whether or not we are truly born of God. 
And they're hard words, but they're good words because they cause us to examine our hearts, to take inventory of our hearts. And it's not too late. And forgiveness is available in Jesus. And that's why it's such good news. Verse 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So Luke closes this section with a little mini summary of what's to come for John. Obviously, this isn't chronological at this point. Luke is sort of wrapping up what he has to write at this point about John the Baptist so he can move on to write about the ministry of Jesus. Now, what's going on here, and we read this in the other Gospels, that John called Herod the Tetrarch a dog or a fox for his ungodliness and for his sin. Specifically, he's referring to Herod's relationship to Herodias. Now, I want to give you a quick feel for this. Let me walk you through how wicked it is. And you've got to pay attention because guys out there who marry their cousins don't have anything on Herod and his family. The Herod that Luke mentions here is Herod Antipas. He has three brothers. Aristubulus, Philip, and Archelaus. Herod's brother, Aristubulus, has a daughter, and her name is Herodias. Herodias was betrothed by their grand, her grandfather, Herod the Great, to marry, uh, to marry her uncle, Philip. So Philip was married to his niece at the betrothal of her grandfather, Philip's father. Well, Herod Antipas also Herodias' uncle, met Herodias while visiting the family and fell in love with her and she with him. So Herod convinced Herodias to divorce Philip, his brother, and Herod divorced his wife, and then Herod and Herodias were married. And to make it all even more convoluted, when we get into Luke even further, we find out that Herod was seduced by the dancing of Herodias' daughter, which would be his own stepdaughter. And he offered her anything she wanted. And at the prompting of her mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that's what she got. I'm telling you, not even Hollywood producer could make that up. Jerry Springer would be proud. (laughs) So it's no wonder that John calls Herod a dog. But notice the response when John calls Herod to account for his sin, jail, and ultimately death. The preaching of the full counsel of God, his goodness and his wrath, does not allow for a neutral response. There is no middle ground in the gospel of Christ. And this is a theme we see developed throughout the Gospel of Luke. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. We are either for him or we are against him. We are either putting the full weight of our hope and our faith and our trust in him or we are relying on something else entirely. And Luke teaches us through John the Baptist that the reward of God's servant is often not of this world. J.C. Ryle comments and says, All true servants of Christ 
must be content to wait for their wages. Their best things are yet to come. They must count it no strange thing if they meet with hard treatment from man. The world that persecuted Christ will never hesitate to persecute Christians. 1 John 3.13, marvel not if the world hates you. The blood that his saints have shed in his name will all be reckoned for one day. The tears that often flow so freely in consequence of the unkindness of the wicked will one day be wiped from all faces. And when John the Baptist and all who have suffered for the truth are at last gathered together, they will find it true that heaven makes amends for all. And even then, even through all that John the Baptist and thousands of other saints throughout the history of the church have suffered for the name of Christ, it can still be said by us, truly, we are not worthy. We should all be regarded as chaff. And praise be to God that he has made us to be his wheat. He has gathered us in his barn and he's keeping us for eternity. For that we are not worthy. All praise goes to God. Let's pray together. Lord, with grateful hearts, with unworthy hearts, we pray with thankfulness for the gospel, with thankfulness that when Jesus comes with a winnowing fork, and clears the threshing floor that although we're not worthy, that he has received our just penalty for us and that we not be regarded as chaff, but gathered as wheat. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us to be your children, that you have baptized us with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that we are regenerated that we are indwelt, that we are sealed, that we are prayed for, that we are being refined and molded and made to be holy. Not for us, but for you, for your glory, that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And let us be a people like John the Baptist who constantly spend our lives pointing to Jesus, our only hope, our only help, our only salvation. Thank you for your word, and thank you for filling us with hope in the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.